Let's pray to the Father and be ready to listen to Him. Father, thank You for the joy of knowing that You will speak through Your Word. You've given Your Son for all of us to turn to in our sin, in our brokenness, in our failure, in our complete impossibility of saving ourselves, we can turn to your Son, Jesus, and be saved. Help, Lord, this service, this teaching, do just that. Turn people to Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, you all are a tricky and surprising bunch. Thank you very much again for, for that honor. It's a joy to preach to you, and I want to go quickly this morning by talking to you for the first time today, and this will be the first of a short series of four weeks where we're going to talk about the wisdom of God and how to find God's will. Generally speaking, and we will return to that soon, my preferred way of teaching the Bible is to pick a book of the Bible and move straight through it. We haven't done that for months because of needs I've detected in the congregation of knowing who God is, hence a series on doctrine, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now a series on finding the will of God and wisdom. Because probably the single greatest, the most frequently asked question I receive as a pastor is, how do I know the will of God for my life? Have you ever asked that question for yourself? It's a very common question. It's an urgent question. Not only is it is an urgent, if it's not urgent, it's always important to know what the will of God is. And there's so much to say about it that it's literally going to take us four weeks. But this first week should help you begin the journey of cultivating a relationship with God, knowing what you're reading when you open His Word, and I hope give you tools to interpret God's Word so that you can always walk securely in His will according to His wisdom. None of this will happen automatically. Wisdom is something like strength that is cultivated. Nobody gets strong fast. I've dabbled in sports. I've tried to be an athlete. As you can see, I'm clearly not an athlete, but I've had athletic friends. Some of them insect-like strong. And in talking to them about their life, the reason they're strong into their 50s and their 60s, the reason they can still bench press the gym is... When they were 13 or 14 years old, generally they decided to get strong and never stopped. You can't get strong in two weeks. You can't get wise in a single day either. But you can cultivate wisdom and you can understand what I'm going to call the guardrails of God's will and believe it or not, you can walk securely and confidently with a clear conscience before God and people every day of your life and that's what this series is intended to help you with. So let's begin. I'd like you first to open your Bibles. Another bad habit I have developed through necessity of these particular kinds of, of sermons is printing a great deal of God's Word in your bulletin, and some of you have made the regrettable decision to not look at your Bible. That's a mistake. I always and only teach from the Bible because who cares what I think? I'm often mistaken. Ask anybody who knows me. But God has put His will, His wisdom in writing. And I'd like you to open your Bible because we're going to read an entire psalm together. I'd like you to open the Bible in Psalm 19 and know this first about God's will. God wants to be known and understood. He is not playing hard to get. 
If it is ever difficult to understand His will, it is only so because of one of two things. Your unwillingness to actually deal with it or Him deliberately making you wait because He wants you to teach you things on the way to knowing what He wants you to do. He's trying to teach you patience. In Psalm 19, I find an extraordinary psalm from David, a man who grew up under the stars as a shepherd boy before becoming the king of Israel, looking at God's creation and finding, as an old theologian says, that God wrote two books. One is the book of nature, and the other is the book of his word, which we're reading from. In other words, you're going to find in Psalm 19, two things primarily. You're going to find David telling you about God's creation and also tell David telling you about God's word. As David deals with God's word, his conscience is also going to emerge and he's going to start acknowledging his own sinfulness, his short-sightedness, his rebellion, his unwilling and unwitting mistakes and sins against God. Psalms are poetry, so just take this in. Try not so much to study and analyze it as take this trip with David as he looks first at creation and then he remembers God's word and marvels in the fact that God wants himself, God wants to be known and understood by the ordinary man looking up into his creation. Psalm 19, David titled it to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, the voice of creation, above David and around David. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. That's nature. Now David is going to remember God's word in writing. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making, what's it say? Wise, the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. Here's his conscience. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God wants to be known and understood. All around you, the world he made for you to live in, 
all the joys he give you he gives you in it your own body with all of its countless myriad scientists are still understanding them systems cooperating simultaneously with no conscious effort on your part the fact that an unknown number of cells and organisms and electricity and chemical reactions can all take place simultaneously in a crowd this big so that I can speak in English and you can understand and appreciate it and have your intellect, your emotions, and your will all stirred at the same time. That's God who wants to be known and understood. You're not a cosmic accident. You're not a super smart ape. Carl Sagan and all the others who begin with the assumption that God simply cannot be there and try to reason their way blindly to this immense, beautifully tuned universe are wrong because of their presuppositions. There is a God and He wants to be known and He wants to be understood. You're made in His image. Your soul hungers after Him until you deaden it so much from, from sin that you no longer have a conscience left at all. That I've met very, very few people, and I've been in some scary places and dealt with some scary people. I've known very, very few people, perhaps two in my entire life, that did not appear to have any conscience left. Of them, the Bible would say their conscience is seared and insensitive. But that is not normal. Every human being is made by God to love God and to trust God. But for reasons that I'll explain, we prefer our own understanding. When you go to seek God's will and God's wisdom, the first thing you should know is that God is well, ahead of, is well ahead of you. God eternally exists, but He made you so that you could know Him and understand Him, and based on your understanding, love Him. Here's how Peter explained it to Christians, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If you're a Christian, you're already equipped with everything you need for life and a godly life. How does that come? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. If you'll indulge a quick digression, especially in the United States, because of the forcefulness of media and publishing and image crafting, Christians all too quickly tire of Jesus and what God has already and always said in His Word. We're always looking for something else. We're always looking for something extra. If you'd like to, I can start identifying the trends as they wave over us. This new book, this new insight, this new conference, this new band, this new pastor, this new preacher, this new speaker, this is the one that's going to carry me over. And Peter says something very different. God's divine power has granted to us. Granted is the word of gift making. It's not achieving. It's a grant. Did you ever get a grant in college or a grant for anything else? It's free. His divine power has granted or gifted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How will we live the life he's given us? How do we grow in his likeness through, what's the next phrase? The knowledge of Him. The knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. No, Christian, you were made to understand and to love God. And secondly, God put what matters most in writing already. 
What matters most to God is in writing. We just read a small part of it in Psalm 19. If it is essential for life, God put it in writing, and so it is in life. If it really matters, if it really counts, we put it in writing. That's why we sign contracts. That's why people leave wills. No sensible person says on a casual afternoon, by the way, when I die, Marge gets everything, okay? That's going to be forgotten. In fact, that's going to be misrepresented. Because the person who heard that when the chips are down probably doesn't feel that Marge deserves any part of it. And is never going to tell Marge or is going to tell Marge, Marge, she left it all to me. Would you like to come over and enjoy the new house she left me? No, the things that matter, people have always understood, deserve to be in writing. That's why David, at the end of Psalm 19, praised God's word. God put what matters most in writing in his eternal word. These are moral commandments, and if you break these, you're off the road and you're in danger. One of the reasons I love my friend and brother Ray Comfort is when he presents the gospel, he always starts with the holiness of God and the purity and the severity and the righteousness and the elevation of God's law. It humbles people. People left to their own devices, left to measure their own self-worth and their own performance, always think we're doing better than we are. Saw a beautiful video this week that illustrated that. There's a boy standing by, and he kind of, and I thought he was a little bit of a punk in the video. He threw a ball at somebody and said, Think fast. And the grown man thought fast and caught the ball. And the kid's mother says, That, that boy's going to be a professional athlete. So the man gently threw the ball back at the young boy. It went through his hands and smacked him right in the face. <laughs> His mother had accepted the lie that this little chunk of a human being is going to be a professional athlete. I'm just watching a three-second video, and I can already tell you, it's not going to happen. There's no way. Boy, that size would be catching every ball, not embarrassing himself on the internet like that. So it is with human beings. Left to our own wisdom, if we get to pick the crowd we compare ourselves with, we always feel like we're doing pretty well. Visiting prisons taught me that. You can go in the hardest places on earth and find that even there, there's a moral pecking order. And there are some that everybody in the prison despises because they are worse than the others. God's writings, God's law, God's commandments, moral in nature, provide you hard guardrails. If you ignore and break through those, you are off the road and in danger of death. Jesus, just before dying, prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 17, and said this, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Let me explain to you what Jesus is praying for. He is praying to the Father, set these disciples aside in your truth. Separate them out from yourself. Make them holy and good and righteous the way you are. And the way they're going to be sanctified is through your word, which is truth. God doesn't lie. He's not playing hard to get. He uses every means 
that he's given us to communicate to us, but he's not playing hard to get. His moral law, his commandments are actually abundantly crystal clear. And there's a great deal of confusion among Christians because we just don't know what God has said. That's the heartbreak of the pandemic to me. I'm talking in addition to the destruction of an economy, to the loss of human life. What is most regrettable to me in the pandemic is the splintering of families and churches and friendships, people fighting over things that neither one of them can know for sure. And how quickly unity and love for Jesus was exposed as mere cultural conditions. The reason we're limping along is because Christians ourselves are not entirely sure all the time what God has said. And what God has said is in his word. Our confusion comes and our great need is to know for certain not what the pastor said, but what God said. I don't want to add to the division by naming names, but some Christians are being led off the cliff by Bible preachers who were careful and faithful until these last 18 months have put pressures no lonely to God and them on them, and they are suddenly experts in areas in which they clearly have no idea. And I'm not even talking about the pandemic at this point. I'm speaking from the perspective of a missionary now of things that are reported overseas that I know from personal knowledge, being able to pick up the phone or send a WhatsApp message to people overseas that I know aren't true. Why the hype? Why the fear? Why the hysteria? I have no idea, but the error is God has not said those things. And people are illegitimately using the trust that God's people have put in them to lead them in ways that God has not commanded. We have to stay within the guardrails of what God himself actually said because 2 Timothy says this. Read this with me. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is breathed out by God is scripture. Any teaching of it is only worthwhile and only true if it plainly and clearly adheres to what God has plainly said. Speaking of someone who has the privilege and the honor and the trust to teach God's word, what I want always to do in teaching God's word is for you to have your Bible open and for you as you listen to my explanation of what God said, you can look in your Bible and see for yourself and say, yeah, I see that. Yeah, that's right there. Yeah, he's not making that up. That's not his specific opinion. That's clearly what God has said because it's scripture that's breathed out by God. It is scripture that is profitable for teaching. It is scripture that reproves, in other words, exposes what it's wrong. It's scripture that corrects. It's scripture that trains us up in righteousness so that we, people of God, may be complete, fully equipped for every good work that God has for us. It's all right here. One reason I'm pleading with you to bring your Bible and to keep your Bible handy and to always read your Bible 
to not make this your longest and best encounter with God's Word, but to meet with your Heavenly Father every day to hear what else He may teach you, how else He may correct you, is that God is continually speaking to us through His Word. That again is in Psalm 19. Your Word, David says, is making my soul turn around. It's converting me. It's reviving me. Your word corrects me as I behold your grandeur. I'm aware that I may have sins that are unknown even to me. I may have offended you without knowing it. You ever do that to another human being? Never upset somebody and have no idea what's going on? Little marriage tip along the way. You ask what's wrong, she says nothing. Be very careful because something is definitely wrong. You just don't know how. Well, if you can offend a normal, mortal, sinful person like yourself, how often, how much more must you offend a God who knows everything about you and is holy and righteous above you? That's what David's praying for. Jesus said, your word is truth. Paul now is telling you when you open the scriptures, it's encountering the very breath of God. It's as if God spoke face to face with you and told you his word. Yes, from centuries ago in cultures other than ours, but all of it intended to teach you, to reprove you, to correct you, to train you in righteousness. Won't go into the whole story. Some of you have heard it before. When I was a ninth grader, uh, clumsy choir teacher shattered my left leg playing softball. I was playing first base. He stepped on the back of my leg instead of the bag, pinned my ankle to the ground, shattered it. The bump you have on the inside of your ankle rotated all the way around to join the other one on the other side. And that's how I met Dr. Larinua. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He took one look and said, we're going to operate. I said, what? He put a mask over me, told me to count back from 117 at a time. I got through the first subtraction, then I was done. <laughs> when I woke up, I later understood, it was later explained to me what happened. He used his skill of medicine to open up flesh on my left leg, to expose what is wrong and to put it back in place. About two months later, it was mended and then began a long process of rehabilitation and exercise to strengthen the leg. That's exactly what God is promising here in his word. To reprove, to expose what is wrong, to correct, but to put it back in place, to train you up in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This morning, I walked for about two miles and beheld a spectacular sunset right after reading Psalm 19. You can see it if you look on my Instagram. I'm not selling anything, don't worry. <laughs> it was just very striking to read about God's creation and then see a masterpiece right in front of me. But I ran and walked and jogged and did a little exercise, never thinking of my left leg because it's rebuilt, it's re-strengthened. I don't think about it anymore. That's what God's Word can do for you. And the reason so many Christians are limping around on one leg in their own understanding is they only listen to themselves and to each other. They don't listen carefully to God and they're not open to correction. That's the problem. And when we say amen, let's also say oh me because it's us. The problem's not out there. The problem's in here, in my heart. 
So that's the first thing that I want you to know, that God wants to be known and God wants to be understood and that he has put what matters most in writing. God wants you to turn from your sin and be saved through Jesus. God wants you to give up on yourself and your idea of what it might look like to please him. He wants you to give up on religion and self-confidence. He wants you humble enough to say to Jesus, Jesus, I cannot save myself. My conscience tells me so. Your word, when I look at it, accuses me and holds me guilty. Please save me. God wants your sexual holiness as well. He doesn't want you to defraud others or to take advantage of others through sexual immorality. He wants you to use your body for his own purpose. He wants you to love his bride and his body, which is the local church. He wants you to read his word and obey it. He wants you to speak to him in prayer and give him your burdens and receive also from him your directions and your instructions. You'll notice this is a pretty wide-ranging list. There's more. I'm just giving you a few examples of the things that God has put in writing. And number three, God has granted you the freedom to navigate everything else. God's moral commandments are guardrails on the road. The wisdom with which you navigate all of these other things which Christians are presently fighting each other over with such ferocity, when matters of wisdom are elevated to matters of morality, only division, only destruction can await us. James chapter 1 verse 5 is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It's set in the middle of the context of suffering. James is writing to people like himself who are suffering for their faith and tells them when you encounter all kinds of trials, you should consider that all joy. And everybody says, whoa, 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 wait a second, let's, that's a little, let's not be hasty. That sounds crazy. And he explains why. And James chapter 1, verse 5, one of my favorite promises in Scripture that I've depended on more in the last 18 months probably than in the last several years combined, tells you that while you suffer, while you navigate things that are not clear to you how to act as a Christian, God will always give you wisdom if you merely trust Him. Read it with me. James chapter, five, verses five, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. The Bible says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me unpack this promise for you briefly. If you ask God in trust to God to give you wisdom, he always will. And he'll give it to you, James says, with, he'll give it to you generously, and he'll also give it to you without reproach. What does that mean? Parents understand what it is to do the right thing, but do it reproachfully. We say things like this, I got to go home and feed these kids. <laughs> Gotta? Well, yeah, you do. But it should be a get-to, not a have-to kind of thing, right? Dad, can I, again, 
You're hungry again already? Didn't we feed you lunch? In marriage, in relationships, in friendships, people give each other the right thing all the time, but they do it reproachfully. That's you again. I'm I'm just asking for what we agreed upon. I'm asking for what's obvious. I'm asking for what's common sense. Yeah, okay there. You never have to go to your Heavenly Father that way. If you will just trust Him, James 1.5 says, He'll give you His wisdom generously and without reproach. See, wise fathers are delighted that their children ask them things. I had one of the sweetest moments in my parenthood just yesterday, and he doesn't even know about it, and he's going to be embarrassed when he hears this sermon in the second service. My younger son had a little thing. Somebody raced by on a motorcycle and clipped his mirror and then drove off. Hit and run. Nobody's hurt. Well, hopefully the cyclist is. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Hopefully his conscience is hurt at the very least. And he's a grown man with his own car, makes his own money, very responsible. But some of you will someday understand when your adult son calls and says, Dad, I was on Beach Boulevard, your heart tightens a little bit. It's just a mirror, no big deal. We'll get that fixed, it's no problem. And then he said, Dad, thanks. I thought that's what you were going to say, but I didn't know what to do. And anytime I don't know what to do, I call you. Yeah. (laughs) He has no idea how happy that made me. Your heavenly father feels just the same way, but perfectly. You can go to your heavenly father all the time and say, I don't know what to do. And he'll say, I know. I've been watching you. (laughs) It's obvious that you don't know what to do. Sit down, son. Sit down, daughter. Let me tell you what to do. He'll give you wisdom generously and without reproach. This matter of wisdom, is, are, is these aren't guardrails anymore. These different wise choices are lanes. And you will travel safely in God's will here, though not everyone will be exactly where you are. Because you're all on the road together, but you're in different lanes And please hear me on this. Calling a good way to obey God, the only way to obey God, is not righteousness, it's legalism. Please hear that. And the destruction of the evangelical church is that some Christians in their families, in their friendships, in their churches, and regrettably, even some Christian leaders have elevated a legitimate lane, a way to obey God, to the only way to obey God, and cast everybody else out as merely disobedient and rebellious. I know about legalism because I grew up in it. The Bible college I attended, like all Bible colleges from that movement of churches, were modeled on military academies. The men, the great men, the godly men who evangelized the world, who did things like get on ships to go to places like Korea and Japan, never having been there and knowing no one when they arrived, speaking not a word of the local language, they were great men, but their entire concept was the military, of training and instruction. So they made Bible colleges modeled more on Annapolis than a a university. So what I'm wearing right now, 
breaks two rules at my Bible college even in casual hours. My shirt is untucked and my jeans are blue. That's two strikes, not one. In class hours, I should be wearing a tie. Even in casual hours, my shirt should be tucked in. And for reasons I only understood later, my jeans could be anything but blue. And Levi started making jeans in the colors of the rainbow. So I bought the most outrageously colored jeans in America and would strut around looking at the people who made the rules saying, sorry, I'm within the rules. I know you hate these red jeans, but they're legal. Where did that rule ever come from? I found it out later by listening to uh, radio commentary. The guy said that when he was growing up in small town Missouri during the Vietnam War, the only people who wore blue jeans were people who were trying to tear down the establishment and spent their day getting high. He said, so as long as we were in Vietnam, I wore chinos because I didn't want anybody to think I was associated with that stuff. And I thought to myself, the registrar of my Bible college was a Marine Corps captain in Vietnam. He sees blue jeans and he thinks of LSD. He sees blue jeans and he sees kids rolling around naked in the mud at Woodstock. He associates all kinds of things with a garment that is just modest, that was actually created for cowboys and miners. What is the biblical guardrail? Modesty. Modesty is commanded in Scripture. What that modesty actually looks like can vary widely because there's a lot of different ways to be modest and the way that legalism creeps in is when you lock on to your preferred way, the way you know, the way you legitimately please God in your obedience to God, when you make that binding on all Christians everywhere, the closer and closer you get to legalism and self-righteousness. Take this to heart. The closer you get to making individual choices, binding on all Christians everywhere, the more likely you will fall into legalism and the worst kind of righteousness, which is self-righteous. Only one is truly righteous. God. All others are humbled by His law, humbled by His holiness, must trust Jesus as Savior, and then walk safely in the guardrails of His revealed will. Romans 14, which I'll explain to you in depth next week, says this. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's a few questions to bring it home for you. Questions for people seeking God's will. Are you, by the way? Are you seeking God's will? Here's three questions to guide you and to help you make sure. Number one, are you committed to doing God's will, whatever it may be? That's the first question. Are you truly committed to doing God's will, whatever it may be? The honest answer for many is not really. I'd like to hear from him first. (laughs) I know this. Because three different times I've started a sermon asking this question. If I can show you without a doubt in the pages of Scripture what God wants you to do, will you promise me before you even hear it that you will do it? And it gets as quiet as a mortuary in here. (laughs) 
And the answer is, well, yeah, yeah, well, let's see what you let's see what you say, let's see what God said. We're gonna reserve judgment until we're quite sure and we're convinced. If you tell the Lord, Lord, if you will only show me what you want me to do, I promise to obey you, God will always show you. There's no parent in the world who has a humble child come to him and say, Dad, all I want to do is to please and obey you. Please tell me how. That child's never been turned away. Listen to Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it. What's it say? With my whole heart. You teach me. I'll obey all the way through. I'll finish well. You give me understanding, and I promise that I'll observe it with, your whole, with my whole heart. Question number two, are you willing to do now what God has already shown you? See, this is what annoys me about the new wave, the new thing, that this will change your life. The people who were always chasing the latest book, the latest conference, the latest viral sermon, almost without exception in my experience in dealing with them at a deep level, aren't doing the basic things that God already commanded. You don't need specialization. You need simple, heartfelt obedience. You need to confess your sins daily to God. You need to share the gospel with every creature. You need to help make disciples in every nation. Husbands, you need to love your wife sacrificially the way Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, even though he's not respectable all the time, you, out of love for Jesus, need to respect your husband. That's in Ephesians 5. Children, you need to obey your parents. You need to render obedience unto your parents as unto the Lord. Not because your parents are always right, but because God commanded you to live respectfully and obediently in relationship with your mom and dad. You need to get a job. The Bible says if a person will not work, they should not eat. Not if they can't work, but if they refuse. Ephesians says that the person who used to steal should now work so that he has something to give away. Someone else who has needs. That's why this second matters so much. Are you willing to do now what God has already shown you? Listen to the psalmist again, Psalm 66. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Boy, it's a heavy verse. You come to God with this heart. God, I know I'm in disobedience and I insist on being in disobedience. I still will be in disobedience, but I need to talk to you about some stuff. God may very reasonably say, go back and do what I already told you. Go back and do what I've already dealt with you about. Then come back and talk to me. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Wow. Are you willing to do now what God has already shown you? Many Christians are looking for advanced, super specialized, pinpoint, tailor-made guidance while ignoring the fundamentals of what they've always known God has already told them to do. It won't work. God will call you back to the fundamentals always. Third and final question, the hardest, are you willing to be corrected? I know I'm being very personal. 
But if, I, if you'll indulge me one last time, let me tell you part of the burden of being a pastor. Very few people actually want guidance. They want validation. Bruce, don't you think? Nope. <laughs> well, that's not what... I know that's what they said. You asked me what I thought. On two different occasions, I've been blamed for otherwise mature, godly Christians who knew the Bible well. They fell into sin, had a horrible, destructive, sexual affair, and on two occasions in two different countries, blamed me. One guy scheduled a meeting to tell me that he'd been sleeping with someone he shouldn't have been sleeping with, and he was disappointed in me. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Are you willing to be corrected? Not by another person, although God may use another person, like a pastor, like your parent, like your spouse, like your friend who loves Jesus more carefully than you do. He may use that person as an instrument to make God's will, which you ignore in writing. If you hear it in an ordinary human voice, maybe that'll wake you up. Are you actually willing to be corrected? When you seek the Lord, don't seek validation. Seek wisdom. Say what hardly anybody in America, and I'm being hard on the United States because I talk to missionaries every day, the hard-headedness characterizing our current situation truly is unique in our country compared to every missionary I can talk to. We are not bearing up well under suffering. We are majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. If you will humbly sit before the Lord and consider before Him and maybe also the people He has appointed to give you guidance, the extraordinary possibility that you could be wrong, you might learn. And I'm not talking to you as an expert. I'm talking to you about as a fellow struggler. I can argue with a stick to maintain my point of view. I can win too. I can make the stick humble itself and say that it's been wrong all of its wooden life. It's absurd how quickly pride flares up in me when somebody tells me you're wrong. Well, what if I am? What if I am not the repository of all knowledge and wisdom on this earth? What if, I've been what if I've been guided by a bias? What if I've been biased by a trauma? What if I've been guided by a hatred rather than a love? Consider the fact that you're wrong and when you seek God's will before God and anyone you trust in your life enough to love the Lord and to give you their best understanding of what God has said, be willing to be corrected. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. A wise pastor told me, don't give advice until you're quite sure they want it. Because even then, if you say something they don't like, they'll reject it. This isn't personal. It's not, I'm not complaining. You're a spectacular congregation. I've already told you. This is human nature. My pastor used to say, I have a lot of advice, all of it brand new because it's never been used. <laughs> it's true. 
That is the human experience. That is the human heart rising up against the wisdom of God. Read this with me and we'll be done. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man, what's it say? Listens to advice. He doesn't just hear it. He listens. He takes it to heart. He's humble enough. She's humble enough to say, maybe I've been mistaken. I'll start walking that way and just see what the Lord does. Listen, from my heart to yours, I'm inviting you on a journey to walk between the guardrails of God's clearly revealed word, obey his actual will, and in all other things, seek his wisdom. Let's pray together. I've asked if you know Jesus, I've told you that you need to humble yourself before the Lord, accept that he's right and you're wrong if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior. Have you? Are you entirely sure that Jesus is your Savior? If you're not completely sure, could I invite you to make sure now? By turning away from yourself and your sin and your own understanding, stop limping along with your own best understanding and welcome God's word and correction into your life so that Jesus may save you. And Christian, would you commit until we meet again next Sunday to read more carefully and listen more attentively so that you may possibly be corrected, you may be instructed, and you can walk more wisely? Father, we commit your word and the hearing of it to you. We ask that you would bless us each according to our need. If anyone here, Lord, does not know you as Savior, I pray that right now they would turn to you and call out to you and say, Jesus, please save and forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I've sinned. I've defied you. I've ignored you. Please forgive me and save me. And you'll never turn away that humble heart. For those of us, Lord, who are in your family, help us walk humbly with you as children who are eager to hold on to your hand and please you. Let us not judge each other when we're walking in different lanes, but still on the path of truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. amen. If you have a spiritual question, if you've made a spiritual decision this morning, there will be a card in that bulletin. Please fill it out. Leave it with us at the hello table or give it to one of the ushers on the way out. God bless you. Love you. Thank you for making my Sunday so special.